What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 4, midway through. In fact, we left off in the middle of a verse last week. We're in the middle of verse 6. Revelation chapter 4, we're going to pick it up on the second half of verse 6, beginning a new paragraph. When you find that in your Bible, let's go ahead and stand up together as we recall that God's word is inspired and infallible, the, in, in, the uh, inerrance word of the true and living God. When we read the scriptures, we're hearing from the Lord himself. Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through the rest of the chapter. Let's listen now to God's word. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes and fronts and behind. And the first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. And you may be seated. There's a lot of strange creatures that God has made. I can't believe that the anglerfish is real. Have you ever seen one of those before? They're deep in the ocean. That's that weird fish that has like a light bulb hanging off the top of its head. You ever seen one of those before? Their mouths are treacherous. They have these terrible looking teeth. They look like something out of Star Wars, if you know what I'm saying, especially the cantina scene in episode four, not to get too nerdy on you there. The anglerfish, though, they have these light bulbs that hang off and it attracts the other fish and that's how they gobble them up and they, they, they devour them that way. It's the strangest creature in the sea. But then the second I say that, I'm reminded that there's the octopus too. The octopus is just this entanglement of of legs and suction cups all over its body. Who would have ever thought that something like that is actually real? And then even in the ground below us, there's creatures that we're not aware of. The the star-faced mole is so weird. Don't Google it right now, but when you go home today, Google the star-mouthed mole. It is the strangest creature 
There may be some below us right now, for all, for all that I know. And I look out at all the creation, and you've got the earth, and you've got all of the mountain regions, and especially down in the depths of the sea, there are so many weird animals that God made. There's the, there's the aardvark, and there's the narwhal, and there's the platypus, and there's like Cleveland Browns fans. I mean, there's just weird. <laughs> there's just weird creatures out there. And, 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 and yet, as strange as reality actually is, sometimes it's... It's even more crazy than something that Dr. Seuss himself could have come up with. And he has a wild imagination if you ever read those Seuss books to your children before. But today, in John, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 4, John, the apocalyptic writer, he is going to describe for us some creatures that probably exceed even the things that we might see in some of the most fantastic science fiction novels and movies, but these creatures are real. These are the angels that John is describing here in Revelation chapter 4 in our text before us this morning. The, almost every theologian who studies this text acknowledges that these are, these, these are the angels, but one thing that's kind of just ironically strange is that Revelation uses the word angels something like 75 times. And yet in chapter 4, the word angel, the Greek word angelos, is not present. It's one of only three chapters in Revelation where the book doesn't use the word angel. So I think it's 4, 6, and 13 are the only chapters where the word angel doesn't come up. Other than that, he's talking about them all the time in Revelation. I just find that to be somewhat startling because this chapter, we might even say, is a glimpse into the life, the inner life, the worshiping heavenly life of the angels themselves. And so uh, let me just remind us for a moment of what we mentioned last week, last week here on the, the remember the week where we didn't have any power, that was fun. Uh, I said something that I want you to just kind of put away in your memory banks about this whole scene here, this whole heavenly scene. It is really three things simultaneously, and we can't, we can't really let go of each one, any one of these, and I'll, I'll explain more why in just a moment. But we have to remember though that, that first of all, this throne room scene, it is divine revelation. This is what God has given to us to reveal not only himself, but eternal and spiritual truths. And so what we're reading today, this is something that the Lord would have us to understand and to appreciate to the best that we're able to do so with our minds, our hearts, even being called into, into obedience with this. So this is divine revelation. At the same time, don't forget, don't lose track of the idea that this is John's own experience. Like he was really, although not in body, but in spirit, he says, he saw these things. And so John is like a mortal, just as you and I. And he's trying to describe the things that he saw. Now, the fact that he experienced these things with his own eyes, seeing them, does not mean, though, that this is normative. We shouldn't necessarily be seeking these kinds of experiences. God gave this to John rather uniquely. Only a few other people saw things even remotely similar to what John sees here. I'll mention a couple of those in parallel here in just a moment. But then also, I don't want us to lose track of the fact that this is still a piece of literature. This is a piece of holy scripture. It is a writing, and so it still is going to conform to other literary conventions, especially and including the fact that John is, as a writer, literarily dependent on other sources. And we're going to see him quoting Isaiah chapter 6 directly, we're going to see him alluding to Ezekiel chapter 1, probably Ezekiel chapter 10, and then Daniel 7 is never really lost in most of the book of Revelation. It's just still there, latent in what John is saying. So don't lose track of any one of those things. This is Revelation experience and still literature. 
But nevertheless, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on these strange living creatures. And I'm going to give you an easy outline that you can remember quite simply because there, there are three A's that I want to look at this morning in relation to these, these strange angelic beings. Uh, and they're this, and I'll give them to you now and then we're going to go through them one at a time. First, we're going to study as much as we can their appearance because he does give, John, a physical description of these angelic beings. So we're going to look at first what they look like. Secondly, though, I want to move to something more important than that, and that is their actions or their activities. What do these creatures do? What is their purpose? What is their function? We might even be surprised to see that there's some similarities between us and them. And then third, I think we would be totally missing the point of the passage if we didn't look at their adoration of God. And so three A's then this morning, their appearance first, their activities or their actions second, and then mostly most significantly then, their adoration of God. So grab your Bible, uh, don't put it away, keep it out with you on your lap as we do these things here. We're expository uh, preaching here at Gospel Fellowship. And so let's begin here in verse 6, middle of the verse. It says, verse 6, Around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now the Greek word here that John uses is simply the word zoe. It's one word. And so almost every English translation that I look at has to use multiple words. So ESV here says, what? It says, living creatures. The old King James, beautiful, wonderful translation. The King James has living beasts. I don't think that beast is the right word necessarily, though, because the word beast usually translates something um, like uh, cattle or cows or oxen or sheep or rams, something that kind of roams on the ground. But nevertheless, there's not really a good equivalent word that captures everything that's here. So it's just the word zoe, the living ones, living creatures. We might even translate it living things. These alive ones is kind of the idea that John, that John gives us here. Now we have the word zoe too. We use it in the word zoo or zoology or other such studies of living things here. But even though John doesn't use the word angels anywhere in this passage, it is universally agreed by the better theologians as that's exactly what he's describing here as angelic beings because they're certainly not humanoid. Uh, Now, when we look at the angels in Scripture, sometimes the Bible we use two different classifications for the angels. By far, the most common classification is the cherubim. I think the cherubim are mentioned some 50 times by name throughout the Scriptures. The seraphim, by contrast, are only mentioned in Isaiah 6. It's the only passage in all of the Bible that mentions the seraphim. So primarily it's cherubim and secondarily only seraphim. But um, whatever is the, the distinction between the cherubim and the seraphim, we really can't say because as much as we wish we, that we could delineate between the genus and the species of these categories of angels, we just simply can't do that based on lack of information. We don't know enough about what exactly is the difference between these two categories and even whether or not there may be other categories of angels that aren't specifically mentioned by name here. All right, so I just want to remind you though that cherubim uh, being the most common kind of angel described in the Bible, these are the ones that we see at the end of Genesis 3 where God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden having sinned and they, he gives them the flaming sword. We see cherubim also even in the temple the golden, um, the, uh, the, the, the golden formed cherubim on the top of the hilasterion, which is the, the, uh, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, even in the temple in the most holy place. Those are supp- supposed to be cherubim 
as well. And so just kind of keep that in mind as we go. But notice here, as we look at their appearance in verse 7, moving on to the next verse, that there is something, though, of this world that John uses to help us to understand them. So in verse 7, he says this, The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now again, we say, well, why these animals? Well, uh, probably because each one of these animals is uniquely, in a sense, the lord of its own dominion. Okay, So for instance, the lion is clearly the king of the beasts of of the wilderness. That's the one you don't want to mess with when you're out in the wilds. On the other hand, the ox is some, something of the greatest of the beasts of all of the domesticated animals, of the animals that we can control. The ox, at least in an agrarian society, is one of the, the strongest and greatest and most helpful of the beasts. So too, the eagle is the king, as it were, of the air. Now, interestingly though, did you notice this? That Although the Bible commonly describes creation as the heavens and the earth and the sea, there is no sea animal here that has dominion. And that's probably because in the Hebrew cosmology, the greatest creature of the sea is the Leviathan, which unfortunately is usually connected with evil and uncontrollability. So there is no Leviathan face here to the angels. And by the way, I should just make this clear here. Whatever else these creatures are, they are certainly not chubby little babies. Okay. Some of you are sending me Christmas cards already, and i got a complaint to register here because none of your angels are biblical. They're all chubby babies, and that's clearly not what's being described. So some of you, I want better Christmas cards with realistic-looking angels. That's my challenge. I'll just throw that out for you. All right. Now, it says in verse 8 that they have wings and eyes all around. It says, living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. So they've got eyes all over their body, which is certainly a strange description here. And now it's impossible for us to ignore that John does seem to be leaning also on Ezekiel's description of the cherubim as well. But here, this becomes a little bit complicated for us because when we look at what John says about these creatures, juxtaposed to what Ezekiel says about these creatures, and with what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the problems we run flat into is that while all of their descriptions are similar, none of them are exactly precise in terms of describing the same things. Here's what I mean. So Ezekiel, he says that the creatures he saw also had eyes all over, but had four wings, not six. So what's going on there? Now, Isaiah agrees with John that these creatures have six wings, but he doesn't say anything about eyes all around and nothing about the creatures of the ox and the lion and the eagle and so forth, but Isaiah does. Okay? Isaiah calls his creatures the seraphim, Ezekiel calls his the cherubim, and so if we're going to kind of make a chart and try to look at this in some sort of an analytical fashion, one of the problems that we run into here is that John's description doesn't seem to precisely match with either Ezekiel's on one hand or Isaiah's on the other. So what's going on there? Well, here um, we have to do a little bit of thinking and some logical 
analysis. So let's just take a step back. Let me give you a couple of options of how to reconcile these differences between the creatures. Okay, Just some options here. I'm not 100% sure what to do with this text necessarily, but, but let me just try my best here. First, it is possible, we'll call this A, that somebody messed up in their description. Either it was Ezekiel, Isaiah, or John. They got the, the facts wrong. Right? Maybe Ezekiel, let's say, let's just pick on him, he was so astounded by what he was seeing, he was so overawed by the sight of these creatures that he simply counted the wings wrong. Maybe he thought he saw four, but there were six. They were moving so fast. How can you blame him? Right? So maybe it's just these uh, three men are describing what they saw as something like eyewitnesses, and, and one or both or more of them just got the facts wrong. Ezekiel thought their faces were changing, because he says that too, that their faces actually had four faces. Uh, maybe he was just confused. But i got to tell you, I don't like that option at all. I'm going to throw out that option. Here's why. Because don't forget, uh, just like I said earlier, this is not only experience, and it's not only just literature, it's also divine revelation. And so what John says, and what Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, and Isaiah says, this is all true. This is all inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. So I don't like the idea, I'm going to throw that out, that one of them messed up. Okay, so what are the other options? Well, maybe this is the, dis the distinction between the cherubim and the seraphim right here. And if that's true, then probably the best way to reconcile this is to say that John and Isaiah saw the same thing, even though Isaiah doesn't mention a couple of the features that John does. We could say that what John is seeing here is the seraphim in contrast with Ezekiel's cherubim, even though Ezekiel has a lot in common as well. Here's another option. I think this is viable for us as Bible-believing Christians. It is possible, and bear with me here, that some of this is symbolic language. All right? Now, we have a high view of Scripture here at Gospel Fellowship, very high view of Scripture and the fact that we have a high view of Scripture, though, does not prohibit us or preclude us from interpreting certain things using symbolism from time to time. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, even as inerrantists as you and I are, I hope. Uh, there's nothing wrong with interpreting some of these things symbolically. And so it is possible here that we, we might want to be careful about over-literalizing some of these details. Maybe they're just conveying spiritual realities, okay? So that's possible. I don't see anything wrong with that interpretation. But let me throw out one more, just for fun. Just for fun. What if, and I don't know this is true, I'm just saying, what if these creatures change in appearance from time to time? What if they actually have the ability to change their visible manifestation? Now, something like the character Bayorn in, in The Hobbit. My daughter and I were reading through this. Bayorn shows up as a man sometimes and as a bear sometimes. Now before you say that's ridiculous, don't forget that Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 tells us that sometimes people have entertained angels unawares. In other words, you might have encountered angels, you didn't even know it. Not only that, but in Genesis 18, Genesis 19, at least once in the book of Acts, maybe even at the tomb at the resurrection of Christ, sometimes angels appear to have taken on human form so that it was not immediately evident what they and who they were. Okay, so that's a possibility as well. I say all of that just by way of trying to reconcile these very similar but perhaps distinct visions that Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John give us here. Now, whatever you want to do with that, 
that is not the most important point of this passage. Agreed? Okay, Because we could get lost in the curiosities here. No question about that. John did not write this for our interest in cryptozoology. John wrote this that we would press on then and look number two, here's my second main point, at their actions or their activities. This is more important. Let's go to verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they, that's referring to the elders, talked about them last week, they cast their crowns before the throne. So what is the primary activity of these creatures? That's what we're really interested in this morning. What do they do in here? Unlike their appearance, there is no ambiguity whatsoever. This is entirely clear what their purpose is. They know their purpose. They were made for one thing. They do it very well. They do it all the time. They do it without exhaustion and without any hint of lukewarm like the Laodicean Christians had. What do these creatures do? They worship God. And herein is exactly the similarity that you and I bear with these creatures as your created purpose in this universe, just like the seraphim and the cherubim, whatever differences there may be among them, we have this in common. We were made to worship the true and living God. I will tell you this, the sooner you figure that out, the clearer the purpose of your life will become. If anybody here happens to be wondering why they were made, what is their purpose, what is my calling, what is my vocation, why do I wake up in the morning, let me answer that question for you right now. You were made to worship the true and living God. Will you do that? Is that your desire? I hope so. Now, I I do want to go back to the eyes for just a moment, but let's not lose track of their activity here, even with the eyes. One of the strangest things about these creatures, as you probably already noticed, is that they have eyes all over. Ezekiel agrees. Eyeballs everywhere. What's up with that? Almost every creature, there are some weird exceptions, almost every creature that God made has how many eyes? Two. Yeah. The question is usually about the placement. Okay, So predators have two eyes in the front of their heads, and God made them that way so that they can bear down on their prey. And they chase them down with abandon and that they can consume their prey and live, right? That's why predators have two eyes in the front of their face. Prey, on the other hand, they have eyes on the side of their heads and that's because they're kind of existentially neurotic all the time, always wondering who's going to try to snap them up into their jaws. They're always in fear. They're always afraid. They're always concerned with what other predator is going to try to snap them up. Now, these angels, they have eyes all over their bodies and it's not because there's any predator here that they're concerned with but rather they have eyes all over their bodies because they are made to do what? What what is the purpose of eyes? You know this. Eyes are made to do what? To see. So hang with me here for just a moment. These creatures seem to be particularly made with the ability to see. The desire to see. And what do they want to see? What are they made to look at? Well, the glories of God in Christ, of course. They are consumed. They are delighted. They are thrilled with the opportunity and the ability to take in the glories of God even as they're returning back to Him 
the praise that he deserves. Now, you can probably relate to this a little bit if you've ever looked upon something that is so glorious and so beautiful and true, like a sunset or the face of a beautiful woman, for instance, or, or some other piece of art, and you say to yourself, I just want to get that into my mind. You want to take it in. You want to receive it in into yourself, all the way down into your heart, right? So that's what we do when we look, when we stare at something that's beautiful, is we want that to get inside of us. And so there must be something here about these creatures in that they intensely delight in seeing they're made to look. Now, in John's theology, remember John's the author here, the idea of seeing in John's writing is highly thematically important. Okay, Go back to the Gospel of John. For instance, you, do you know this? That John talks about seeing more than any other biblical author. Okay? Psalms talk about it a lot too, but that's a much bigger book than John's writing in terms of volume. John's gospel is constantly talking about seeing. Even in his epistles, he's talking about we've seen him. To see in Johannine theology means essentially to believe and often to worship and that's why the whole book of Revelation, how does it end? Let's just jump to the end for just a moment. You know the culmination of the book of Revelation is when the saints see His face in heaven? That's right. That is the highest privilege of heaven. It's not the golden streets. It's seeing the face of God. And so there's something about seeing the glories of God that these angels are particularly inclined to do. And almost here, the language is something like there's so much to see in heaven. There's such great glories. There's such amazing manifestations of God's holy nature here that all the angels can stand to do, all they desire to do is to look upon Him all the time. And herein is one of the differences between you and I. And the angels, because what do they do? It says they give him glory and honor and thanks, and they in day and night they never cease to do this. Okay, this is their entire vocation. They don't need to be entertained. The angels have no recreations, they have no hobbies, they have no need to even rest their bodies. They do it day and night without exhaustion. Last week, I gotta I gotta I gotta confess. Last week I was just a little stressed about the whole no power thing. Didn't know when it was going to come on, when it was going to go off, whether we're going to be able to have microphones and all this sort of thing. It was just just another X factor to to make me stressed. I'm already pretty high stress anyways, for the most part. And and not only that, but last week, I don't know if you know it, I was straining to preach as loud as I could. And some of you still told me you couldn't hear me anyways, even though I tried. I came home last week so tired. I was worn after last week. I just crashed on the couch. I didn't move for a couple hours. (laughs) And and that happens to me when I worship. I hope it happens to you to some extent that you're exhausted by this because because you're straining to worship him who's worthy. Okay? Uh, And and the angels, they they feel none of this because they're their power to worship God, it never seems to wane. And so we're, you and I, like we get distracted. Some of you are distracted right now, <laughs> right? Our backs hurt because the pews are, are made out of wood and our legs hurt when we stand too long and you say, how long is this hymn? I got to sit down again. You know, we, we feel exhausted. They feel none of it. 
These creatures are so delighted in the glory of God. And notice this too. Let's go on to the next verse. Now, what, what happens next? The, the presbyters, we met them last week. I told you last week, I thought the 24 elders were somewhat symbolic of all of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament apostles, all in agreements, redemptive agreement here in their worship of God. And now what are they, they have an activity here. What are they doing? They're casting their crowns before the one who is worthy to receive them. Now the crowns are highly significant here in this text because they got their crowns from Christ. In fact, let's do this. Grab your Bible out. Go with me, please. Let's just look back to where the saints get their crowns and for what reason. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. This is the letter to the Smyrnans. Okay? And it says, back in 2.10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation, but be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. There it is. You see, these crowns are, 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 are garnered as gifts of Christ's grace for his church who perseveres through great tribulation and difficulty. These crowns are not easy to come by. Okay? Smyrna was the persecuted church, remember? They suffered. So they, 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 they got these crowns by virtue of of their persevering steadfastness. Now, we see the crowns again in the letter to the Philadelphians. I think it's in verse 11, right? Yep. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So again, the crowns are connected with this steadfast, persevering hope that the saints have. These are important. And yet, what do they do? What do they, they let them go. They cast them before the one who is worthy here. And the idea is that they would not have even had the crowns in the first place had Christ not enabled them to persevere when times were tough. So the crown isn't necessarily a symbol of how tough the church is, but of how gracious the sustaining power of Jesus Christ is to uphold his church during the most difficult of times, okay? So their activities, the angels and the human beings combining together here in verses 9 and 10 to worship God for all of his worth and his glory. Now let's go on then to the third point, and this has to be the most important. Because here what we're going to look at is their adoration. They exist to adore. Verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is now our memory verse for the month. And what a beautiful one it is. It's a lot to see here. We have here what's called the trice hagion or the three-fold repetition of the word holy. Sometimes in theology that's called the trice hagion, trice three hagion, holy, three times holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Notice here this reference to who was, that's his lordship in the past. Who is, that is his lordship even now in the present. And who is to come, that is his lordship in the future. Now again, I mentioned that this is also a piece of literature. What is John relying on here? What is his source text? Who is he quoting? He's quoting now Isaiah chapter 6. A magnificent passage which should be held up in the light next to this passage whenever we think about the throne room of God and there Isaiah says something slightly different a little bit of cadence difference here a little bit of texture 
Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah is talking about the glory, the glory of God pervading all of the earth. And John here just tweaks it slightly to say something of God's eternality, his eternal nature. He was and he is and he is to come. Why does John do that? Well, probably here what's happening is John is reminding his readers that God is still Lord, even though the fact of the matter is true that the people of God are suffering during the time of the writing of this book. Okay? Now, David and I, we've kind of gone back and forth discussing this in my office. Of what, do you, what year do you think John wrote Revelation? I haven't decided. Did you decide yet? We don't know. It's either something right before 70, probably, or, or, or the mid-90s. Those are the two main the two main conjectures of when John wrote. Interesting though, whether we choose a pre-70 AD or a 95 AD historical context, both of those situations are the same in that the church is experiencing intense persecution in that moment. Okay. That's what, one of the reasons it's hard to, to decide. But either way, uh, either under Nero or under Domitian, the church is experiencing some very great struggle by way of persecution in here. And so John is undoubtedly reminding his audience that God is still Lord, that God is still sovereign, that he is still seated on the throne. And that's a huge reminder for us, especially when we get discouraged from time to time and we look out at the world and it looks chaotic. Yeah? Go on to verse 11 and we're going to end here. Worthy are you. Our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here, I think it's important to just point out the purity of their worship. Now, I get it. This is in heaven, and we're down here on earth, right? And so, in a sense, our worship here is imitative of what is happening even now in heaven. But, but I can't help but ignore the fact that this worship is extraordinarily pure. And what I mean by that is this. It is entirely focused on the Lord God Himself. Okay? And that's why some of the contrivances of men that we have down here in the earth are not described there in heaven. I'll give you a couple examples. There are no screens here in heaven. There are no movie clips that are being shown. A lot of churches do that. There are no lasers here. There are no fog machines to create any sort of an ambiance for the gathered worshipers here in heaven. There is no clever personality who is winsomely wooing the audience with his self-adulating stories. The worship leaders here have no pretense whatsoever of even being a personality in the scene at all. And there's no music to manipulate the emotions. Now, there is song present here. Don't be confused. There is song. We're going to come to some of the songs a little bit later as we work through the book. But music does not function in heaven as a tool to manipulate the emotions of the audience. Even music itself, when it is used, is used to express the divine realities of God's ultimate glories and so we see nothing like moonlighting we see nothing like performance arts we see nothing here like what i derisively call worshiptainments okay the sort of amalgamation between worship and entertainment that the american church seems to be fixated upon in our day i think to its detriment this is entirely pure worship it is god 
self-centered worship. There is no mix of any sort of idolatry here. Notice that we see no idols. We see no icons. We see no statues. We see no worship or veneration for the saints, the angels, or even Mary. There are no non-participant observers here either. Okay? That may describe some of you today. You're a non-participant observer of what is happening here. There are none in heaven. Okay? There are no skeptics. There are no critics. There's nobody fighting about worship styles. There's no vain repetition here. There's nobody secretly judging the hearts of the other person for who's worshiping the hardest. Nothing like that. It is pure, beautiful, humble, meek, God-enthralled worship. And that's what makes me want to be there. You too? All right. Let's wrap up with the three applications really quickly here. I'll give these to you and then let you kind of think about them on your own. I just want to sort of drop these on you for you to think about. First of all, this. I'm going to give you three very briefly. You know, you two and I, we're created to worship. That's what we're made for. And so you may look at a passage like this and say, well, what possible bearing does this have in, in terms of relevance in my life? I am nothing like these creatures. Yes, you are. Okay? You don't have wings, granted. You don't have eyes all around. I know that. But the things that you have were given to you just as the angels were so that you would be a worshiper of God. You have hands. Use them to serve Him. You have a mind. Fill it with true things so that you would adore Him. You have a heart. My goodness, let that heart be absolutely enthralled with the glories of God. Of all of the strange creatures that there are in this world, you know what the weirdest and most bizarre, you know what the most grotesque creature is? It is the human being that was made to worship God and yet refuses to do so. That's grotesque. You were made to be a worshiper just like the cherubim and the seraphim. Whatever we're looking at here, we have this in common with them. That is our purpose. Okay. Secondly, I think, I could be wrong here, but the, the description of these angelic beings is a rebuke to our increasingly secularized worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> pretty much everything that surrounds you in this world is conspiring against you to secularize your view of the world constantly. All the time, especially in the media. Right? You turn on the TV, there's a little stock ticker running along the bottom of the screen, letting you know if it's in the green or if it's in the red today in the Dow. What does that do? That secularizes you because, because that pulls you in to the material things of this world. You turn on the radio, you got your talk radio, your favorite guy, politics all day long, right? That is, be careful, that's secularizing you in some sense because it wants you to think and be consumed, utterly consumed with the things of this world. You go shopping, there's all the trinkets. You're going to see it all month. What does that do? It secularizes you. It wants you to think about the things of this life. And so the angels, one of the reasons they exist is to rebuke the over-secularization of our modern worldview. Don't lose track of this. You live in a highly spiritualized reality in which angels are real creatures. This is not fantasy here. 
You live in a reality in which there are demonic forces that, if they could, would destroy your soul. You live in a world filled with temptations that conspire against you to destroy your relationship with God. You live in a world in which His glory and His holiness is manifested over all things. He is the great and the true living God. Don't ignore Him. These angels, in some sense, they they call us up from this world to remind us that there is a world to come. Okay? And finally here, let me just mention this. I just keep coming back to their absolute God-centeredness. And if anything here, the worship of the angels with their zeal and their passion for the Lord, even their many eyes, is very, very unlike, by way of contrast, the Laodicean church with their lukewarm, apathetic indifference. You want to contrast? Compare the living ones in heaven to the Laodiceans with their inert, indifferent, cold hearts. Big contrast. All right, let's pray and then we're going to sing our last hymn. Heavenly Father, Lord, remind us of real realities, the real things that are above us and around us, even within us as your Holy Spirit works to call us closer and closer to faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. We desire to have that pure worship without distraction that the angels and the elders have even now. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.